All right, uh, so how many people in the room have been to a high school or college wrestling match? Anybody been to a high school or college wrestling match? So the, the first time that April and I went to a high school wrestling match, April, uh, CJ, was uh, at a scrimmage. He was like seventh grade. He just comes home like two weeks before school's going to start and says, or before wrestling, and says, I'm going to wrestle this year. Like, what in the heck? You've never done that in your life. And so, uh, so he did. And, and that first wrestling match didn't go so well. As a matter of fact, it ended up with CJ getting choked out on the mat, looking up at us, and April pinching me in the thigh like I was supposed to go down and do something uh, about that. So he, he got fairly decent in wrestling in middle school. His next year, he did fairly well. Then in high school, uh, he wrestled for two years in high school, and it was rough. You know, he wrestled at 160. And if you know anything about wrestling, that is a tough weight class you know, for high school. Uh, there's a couple of matches that really stick out in my mind. Uh, one of those matches was against uh, uh, a four-time Big Ten champion, placed fifth nationally in the NCAA tournament, uh, and uh, he was from St. Paris Graham, which if you know anything about high school wrestling, they've won 15 or 16 state championships in a row in wrestling. It's a public school. And, and so anyway, his name's Bo Jordan, and uh, the referee lifted up his hand, and in a matter of 10 seconds, CJ was pinned. The referee slaps his hand down on the mat. And CJ, I love the response that he gave us that day. Uh, he stands up and he looks over at April and I with this smile on his face like, what are you going to do? Yeah, so and he just walks off the mat. Uh, and then the other one that really stands out <coughs> is uh, he uh, got what's called a near fall. So uh, somebody got him in a position to pin him. And so he had to fight his way out of that, not let his shoulder blades hit the mat. And so somehow in fighting through that, he was able to do this kind of reverse move, and he pinned that kid in like a few seconds after that. And it was just one of the coolest things to, to see that take place, that near fall. Uh, and it made me think of David. You know, as I was looking at this passage of Scripture, and I realized, you know, how often do we have near falls? How often do we put ourselves in a position where we're that close, that close to giving in or that close to failing or that close uh, to something horrible taking place. And, and that's what we're going to see from David's life today. Uh, there are a lot of titles that uh, David is known by. Shepherd, musician, armor bearer, general, fugitive, man after God's own heart. Uh, so it, it's my struggle with that last one that kind of made me look at David's life really hard. Uh, because, you know, you're thinking about David's life. How could this dude be called a man after God's own heart with all of the things? And, and that struggle led me to see that it's not as though David was perfect. The only thing that I've reasoned to is this fact that full, David fully put his life in the hands of God, even in the midst of those struggles. And that's what's important for us to, to gather and grasp. Because I think there's this reality on, on our chase to holiness, right? Because that's what we're all on. We're all on this chase to holiness. And the reality is this, is that while we carry this flesh stuff around, none of us are going to attain that perfection or that perfect holiness here on this side of heaven. And, and so we fall. And then there are other times that, you know, that we see that in David's life, he fell. He fell greatly. And even in the midst of that, and most importantly in the midst of that, he put his full trust in God in the midst of his failure, right? In the midst of when everything was falling apart in his life. That's where he trusted God. That's why I think David is called a man after God's own heart. When we last left David, he'd had this great personal victory, right? This great personal victory. He had the opportunity to kill uh, a Saul who was chasing him, cut off the corner of his robe, was convicted by it, went out and confronted Saul, got the confirmation from God uh, that all was going to, you know, that, that, uh, that he did the right thing. Uh, and so David's men encouraged him, uh, what they believed, but David won this battle. A quick reminder, 
Now, there are three quick, quick takeaways from last week. He sought the Lord, he trusted the Lord, and he gave grace from the grace that he got from God. I closed our time last week pointing to the reality that this was more likely one of David's greatest victories. Have you ever noticed in life what happens when you come off of a victory? Have you ever noticed like you, you win this great victory or you, you overcome this powerful temptation and then all of a sudden you're riding high. You're riding high on life and like, man, I did it. Or you think, well, I mean, to say it spiritually correct, the Lord did it. And then we, we place ourselves in this position, this precarious position at that point that when we're riding high, we're on the top of the mountain, things are good, that life can sneak in and there's sneaky temptations that walk into our lives that put us in those positions to have these near falls. And I think that's the greatest place. See, Satan knows when he can attack us the best, right? He attacks us when we're tired. Um, he attacks us when things are good. But we don't see those attacks right, right up front. It, it usually takes a little bit of time to see that attack. Uh, and, and so that's uh, what I want for us to, to, to understand. Can you imagine, you know, just David's conversations with his men and all these things? He won this battle. And now things are not going to go the right way. Saul says he's going to leave him alone, and he doesn't. Uh, and um, let me remind you of something before I go a little bit further. This is a, a picture of what happens to us. The Bible tells us, be of sober mind, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So David would be a central, he was central to God's plan, and so therefore he was a high-priority target to Satan and this is the time frame that he comes in and attacks. Our passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to focus in on uh, three people, David, Nabal, and Abigail. Uh, so let's look at those people. Uh, 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, uh, Then Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him. I'm sorry. Let me read it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm reading right. And they buried him at his house in Ramah. And David set out and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and three thousand and a thousand goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Uh, now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in all his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Samuel the prophet died, the last judge of Israel. David is his only ally. He, at least in David's eyes, he sees through that. I mean, uh, David's only ally. This text seems to indicate that all of Israel paused at this moment so that they could go to his funeral, and at the, mo the moment this funeral is over, David finds himself again pulling away. Uh, and, and, and to a safe place. And we understand and we hear about this man named Nabal. Nabal's a very rich man, a millionaire by today's standards. His name actually means fool. And it's very unlikely that his parents named him fool. Uh, probably what came about is kind of another play on that last word. It says he was a Calebite. Uh, the root word for that is kind of a, a same root, a word for the use for dog. And so it's almost as though Nabal had this um, appearance around other people to be a foolish dog in his dealings, and he decided, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and live with this. If people want to call me that, that's fine. I'm a millionaire. 
I don't have anything to worry about. I'm not going to let it bother me. Then there's Abigail. She's the wife of Nabal. The text tells us that she's very discerning, meaning wise. She's beautiful, literally lovely in form is what that means. And when we read of this type of person that she was, it's kind of difficult to ask C. Like, well, how did she end up with the foolish dog? Uh, and we have to remember the way she ended up with the foolish dog is most of the time these marriages were arranged in this time frame. So those are the, those are the people there. So First Samuel chapter 25, verse 4. Let's look at a crisis here. Uh, now that, uh, it was a Calebite that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Uh, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And this is what you shall say. Have long life, peace to you, and peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now then, I've heard that you have been shears, and now your shepherds have been with us. We have not harmed them, nor has anything of theirs gone missing all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servant and to your son David. When David's young, young men came, they spoke to Nabal in accordance with all these words in, in David's name, and they waited, which seems like a kind of really a um, fairly good request, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a festive time. This is a time of sharing, and so David's men helped protect Nabal's men. Uh, and, and I'm sure that Nabal was aware of the fact that because David's men were there, his profit margins were up. And so he sends these 10 young men and asks them to supply uh, David and his army with uh, food and with supplies so that they can continue to be there. Let's look at what happens in Nabal's response. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men made their way back and returned and they came and informed him in accordance with all these words. So really, the, what the fool does here is he insults David. Who is this David, right? Uh, he's at, verse 10. But Nabal answered, uh, Who is David and who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from their master. So he's insulting them. It's like a slap in the face. If you'll remember back in chapter 22, verse 2, it let us know that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, went back to David. And so this was uh, something that was happening to them. So the selfishness of Nabal rings out. Uh, look at verse 11 again. And, and I want us to see something here. Look at how many times he says, I and my. So shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? How many of you can kind of begin to resonate with Nabal a little bit? Right? If I partner with David here, then Saul's going to come after me. And by the way, I'm, I want to be in good standing with him. And after all, all of this is mine. I, I've provided for it. I'm not going to give any of this up. So how do you think David's going to respond? How should he respond? I mean, I, I, how he should respond is, you know what? He's right. Nabal doesn't owe me anything, right? I mean, we were out there in the goodness of our heart. We're just running away from Saul, trying to stay out of trouble. So he, he doesn't owe me a thing. I'm not going to demand anything of him. You know what, boys? We'll find another way. God's always provided. Everything will be good for us. Uh, let's just move on. That's not how he responds. Look at verses 12 through 14. 
But David's young men made their way back and returned, and they came and informed him in accordance with all these things. And then David said to his men, Each of you strap on his sword. So each man strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he spoke to them in anger. And so the word gets back, right? Three times the word sword is mentioned here in this passage, right? Uh, one does not strap a sword on their side simply to go and say hello. David's not going and giving him a greeting right here, right? He's going with a purpose. And, and David and those who were in distress were with him. Uh, he, he's, what he's doing here is he's taking his eyes, and this is what we've talked about last week. For a brief moment, David took his eyes off of God, and he put them on himself. And once he put them on himself, he put him in a position to have this fall. Remember, Psalm 27.4, David wrote these words. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And when confronted previously, David sought the Lord on this occasion. He didn't. Why? Because he was ridiculed. Why? Because he was mocked. And I want to, I want to say one other possibility here. Um, maybe it's because he could do something about Nabal. Maybe it's just because he was tired of being pushed around by Saul. Maybe he saw an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm tired of being the stepping stone for everybody else. I'm going to defend my name. I'm going to defend my pride. And David, at this point, entered into a point of selfishness. Have you ever been there? Let's look at the resolution, verses 15 through 17 here. Yet the men were very good to us. And this is the servant still talking to Abigail. Um, we were not harmed, nor did any go missing as long as we went with them while we were in the fields. Uh, they were a wall to us both night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now then, be aware, consider what you shall do, because harm is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. These men protected us. These men made Nabal rich. David's men are going to kill every man here. This is what was happening, verses 18 through 22. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and 100 cakes of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. And she loaded them on donkeys. Then she said to her young man, Go ahead of me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it happened as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, It is certainly for nothing that I have guarded everything that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing has gone missing of all that belonged to him, for he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and, uh, and more so if by morning I leave alive as much as one man of any who belong to him. So David was intent on killing. Right? David himself declares, no one, no man in Nabal's household is going to remain alive. Let's look at verses 23 through 31 to wrap this text up. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face in front of David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your slaves speak to you. 
and listen to the words of your slave. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and stupidity is with him. But I, your slave, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, may your enemies and those who seek you uh, seek evil against my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to you, to, uh, to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the offense of your slave, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord in accordance with all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not become an obstacle to you or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord's having avenged, my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals with my Lord, then remember your slave. Let me read verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. She took three steps. She takes responsibility for Nabal's sin. Understand she does not excuse his sin, right? She just places herself in the middle of David and Nabal and says, count it against me. She asks for forgiveness. The second thing she does, uh, about, she asks for forgiveness for that sin. The second, she points to God's protection on David and judgment on his enemies. The Lord has kept you from doing this. Uh, may he protect you against your future enemies. She also asked David to remember her when he is made king. And what's going to happen from here is that David is going to praise God for this. She's going to go home and tell her husband. He's going to have a stroke or something and die 10 days later. And then David is going to marry uh, this woman as his wife. And so this was a near fall for David. Had he followed through with this, let's think a few things. He would have been guilty of a sin of killing people in innocent blood. He also would have put himself in a position for Saul to righteously hunt him down and kill him in the eyes of the people of Israel. And another thing is that he would have lost credibility among the people, and that's what Abigail points out. So I want to close with some lessons that really stand out to me. And um, here's the first one. I think it's important. Don't allow the past to become fuel for future failure. Don't allow the past to become fuel for future failure. David was angry and he had a right to be. However, his anger, David's anger turned inward. Have you ever asked yourself what makes you angry? I mean, really, what makes you angry? And when angry strikes, why does it hit you? you know, what, what, what's going on in your heart and your soul? Uh, maybe it's uh, when your child disobeys you, you become angry because they disrespected you or angry because you know that disrespect of authority can lead to more and more rebellion in the future. Maybe it's uh, your spouse says something demeaning or just downright nasty to you. Are you angry because they obviously don't understand just how special you are, important you are? Or are you angry because of the possible division in your marriage that might continue to work out? Really, we can tell a lot about what makes us angry. Right? And it should be a question that rises up in us. Like, right? I mean, when we're ready to strap on a sword, think about that. When we're ready to strap on a sword, that should be an alarm going off in our soul. Like, dude, what's going on? Larry, what's going on with you? Why is this such a big deal? 
Why is this bothering you? And if we can get to that point, I think it can keep us from making a future mistake. David was angry because Nabal both offended him and his men and failed to see the value of David and his men. And it most likely, David was tired of fighting. And this was a fight that he could win. The things that were happening to him in the past put him in this position to say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with this right now. I'm not continuing to look at this. I'm taking control right now. And he was going to allow past situations to become fuel for his future failure. How often does something like that happen to us? And something horrible has happened. You've made a horrible mistake in the past of some kind or some sort. Right? And then you dwell on that, or you dwell on the something horrible that's happened that somebody else has done to you. And those things become that fuel that when temptation comes in, that man, that's the fuel that says, you know what? I am going to get revenge. I am going to do what I want to do. I am going to respond. The Bible says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. But for a moment, David forgot the very attitude that carried him through life. And that attitude was a trust in the Lord. So, sometime this week, go back and, and read Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. And this is where David is really trusting in God at these points, right? And he says in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Live in the land and cultivate the uh, faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring out your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently on him. Do not get upset because one who is, un is successful in his way. Listen, man, when those things come up, those things from the past, and, and I'm telling you, we, we carry them. We carry them. We have the junk there. Don't let it become the fuel for future failures. I, I use this passage every day of my life. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow, somehow, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already grasped it. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already grasped it or already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, what's he say? Forgetting what is behind. Behind. You know what's behind? Failures are behind. You know what's behind? Victories are behind. And if we spend so much time focusing either on our failures or on our victories and stop focusing on the Lord, we put ourselves in this perfect position for Satan to come in and use whatever it is in the past to be fuel for future failure. Okay. And, and really, this second point, it just arises out of what we talked about last week. And it's just a reminder, when conflict arises, seek the Lord, not revenge. Seek the Lord, not revenge. This is what we celebrate about David's life. He's fresh off that battle. How, how could he have been so proud of a recent victory over temptation to kill Saul or, and then all of a sudden be here? But we do it, right? 
We, we face temptation to get revenge square in the face and overcome it, and then Satan comes in with another temptation, with another angle. <clears throat> I don't recommend the movie. I watched it for, before becoming a Christian, but there's a powerful scene in the end of this movie. It's called The Devil's Advocate, where the devil takes the form of a reporter, and after this lawyer has this great victory, overcoming this great thing, right? And, and he's walking down these steps, and, and he's walking down, and he's interviewed by this reporter there, and the reporter says, well, basically kind of a Disney world. What are you going to do? I'm going to go to Disney World. It's so great. And he's proud of himself. And he walks down the steps, and then the camera pans back. And what was the reporter is now the character who was playing the devil with a big smile on his face. He's got him. We've got to forget the past and focus on Christ. The Bible says, Now these things have happened to them as an example, that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. Now this goes to show that our seeking of the Lord needs to be a daily occurrence. While we carry this flesh around, we're never going to fully arrive, and we have to realize that. We've got to understand it more and more. And that's what makes people who chase greatness in some form of life admirable to look at. You know why? Because they never forget the most important aspect of their life. It's the goal they're trying to attain. And they follow hard after it every day. They do the basic things every day. Something will... You know, see, you think about that. I, I, I so easily get sidetracked. One of my biggest flaws in life is that I act too quickly. I do. Something happens, and I speak first and ask questions later, kind of like Peter, right? If I had a sword strapped to my side, as a matter of fact, when you know April knows this about me, when concealed carry came around, she said, I'm, a, I'm afraid for you to carry something. You know, she says, man, I'm not that crazy. I'm crazy, I know. But uh, so, uh, somebody say something. Says, "All right, I'm, a cho I'm chopping off ears. I'm gonna give me my sword. There's something coming off, right?" Have you ever heard this phrase that escalated quickly? Right. When when David was told Nabal's response, his first response was a strap on the sword. What about us? And what about us? The Bible says, "A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger." The tongue of the wise makes knowledge pleasant, but the mouth of the fool spouts foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. I wonder, I wonder how differently this would have happened if David would have said, you know, well, we provided for Nabal out of the kindness of our hearts. We're, we're going to be okay. How, how differently would our conflicts go if we would do the same? How would they go? How would they go instead of responding to defend ourselves? Man, I'm guilty. We decide, you know, I'm going to seek the Lord here, and I'm going to let him take care of this. Okay. Instead of holding a grudge against a parent who's wronged you, realizing that God has used that parent to bring you to him. Instead of seeking revenge on a boss who's crushed you, how about praising God for the job that he did give you and the provisions you had while you were there? and trusting him to move you to the next place. And in my devotional reading this week, I came across these verses. And before I read them, they remind me of a, uh, uh, a man that I had the pleasure of meeting down in Florida. His name was Dave. Okay. Dave and Pat. Dave and Pat were our oldest members at the church we served at in Florida. 
Dave actually, I don't want this to come across the wrong way. I just want to give you a picture of Dave. He almost looked like a walking corpse. Had so much skin cut away from sun, you know, from skin cancer, from being in the sun. Retired uh, um, warrant officer for the Coast Guard. Spent all those times, you know, not only in the sun, but out on those boats. And just, but here's the thing about Dave. Dave and Pat were always there. Man, you say, here, we're going to do this. And they were there. Pat, she, we, she propped herself up in the kitchen because we did a hot meal every Tuesday night for low, in, uh, for low income and homeless people. She propped herself up on, in the kitchen doing dishes with her cane kind of pushed into her side so she could stand there. And if you tried to get her to leave, she wouldn't. And, and Dave became one of our deacons. And I remember asking the deacons, we were sitting around talking, I said, guys, what verses carry you through life? And Dave, he said these verses, and it shocked me. These are the verses that he shared. He said, you know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, not everyone, now everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. I was in shock. These are the verses that carry Dave around? I mean, I was expecting to hear something from the Psalms. I was expecting to hear some just... You know, I, I don't know what I was expecting here, but he said that, and I remember my jaw kind of hit the ground, and then I started thinking about it for a few days. Do you know why Dave was that guy? Do you know why? Because he focused on the Lord always, and he reminded himself with these words daily that God's righteousness is not seen through his anger, so he's going to be quick to listen and slow to defend, slow to judge. Our focus needs to stay on, on the Lord always. Not only when times are good, especially when times are good. Not only when times are bad because we get that comfort from him, but always. Here's my last piece of advice, and it's not going to sound very spiritual. The first part will. Uh, listen to godly people when they try to stop you from doing something stupid. Okay. Really, when they try to stop you from doing something stupid. I wanted to find a way to sound spiritual, but the truth is David was about to do something stupid. If he would have gone through with it, the slaying of Nabal, everything in his life would have been ruined. And we're going to see later that he's directly responsible for Jesus Christ coming to this earth. So, I mean, this was huge. Somebody stepped, stood in the gap. David declared, if you had not come, not only would I have been guilty of this great sin, but this, there would not have been a man left alive. This is proof that God often uses others to keep us from walking down a path of sinful misery. Think about Scripture, right? Who are some of the people or things that God used? I, I want to break out the King James English right now, but I won't. Because he used Balaam's donkey. His donkey talked to him and kept him, right? How, how many of us, you know, when, when family members come to us or friends come to us and they begin to speak the truth of God's Word into our lives to try to keep us from doing something stupid? Right? And instead of listening to them, what we do is we get mad at them. We treat them like they're the ones that are wrong. Many like, like what Paul wrote. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul asked the question. We treat people like that. I'm reminded of a co-worker at Simmons. Bob. Their, their names are always Bob. Um, so, Bob was a supervisor with me. We had both just got promoted. Life was good, right? So we went and got sent the second shift. I was in charge of the mattress and the coil department. Bob was in charge of the, 
the, pan the, the panels and the, and the um, borders. And, and so uh, and, uh, there was a, a young lady over there that took a liking to Bob. Problem is, is Bob was married. And, and I started to see kind of Bob and this young lady spending time together, and Bob and I were friends. And I went up to Bob. I said, Bob, you don't need to do that, man. Stay away. It's danger. And he looked at me and said, Larry, I'm fine. Stop. Mind your own business. Okay, I did. I did. About two months later, Bob and me were sitting in an office, and he said, you know what? My marriage is about to fall apart. I didn't listen to what you said. I treated you like you were stupid. Thankfully, the Lord walked into Bob's life and his wife's life, and they were able to reconcile and get into a position that that didn't wreck them. But it sure could have. The Bible says, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. There are far too many people in the world that are willing to stand around you and pat you on the back on the way to hell. They are. Good job. Keep going. We'll see you soon. Very few people that will stand up and tell us the truth. And when that person stands up and tells us the truth, we need to listen to them. It can be a spouse, a close friend, a Bible study, a grow group. If we're going to be successful when times of near fall take place, we're going to need to become vulnerable people that let other people in. And when we let them in, we need to allow them to, to speak the truth of God's word into our lives. And we need to allow them the opportunity to say, Hey, Larry, that's stupid. Don't do it. Don't go down that path. So will we do that? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for today, for your word, for the opportunities for us to worship you, to serve you. Come in your spirit, take whatever lesson needs to be implanted in our hearts and do that this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. If you'll grant me just one one more second here, because I got thinking through this whole thing. Like, where's Christ in this sermon? You know, where where's he at? I was told a long time ago, if you can't preach Christ in a sermon, then don't preach the sermon at all. And so, studying this passage of scripture, like, okay, where where's he at? And then I, interestingly enough, and give me a, just a one second here to prove, say this. Interestingly enough, I see Christ in Abigail in this message, okay? uh, and because she stood in the gap. She stood in the gap between two men, right? Two men who were both sinful, her husband and David. She stood in the gap and kept that from happening. And it got me thinking about something. You know what? I mean, apart from Christ, all of us are marching our lives to this great conflict. And, and I'm not saying that God has a sword strapped to his side waiting to meet us. But apart from Christ, if we don't know him and accept him and receive him to be the Lord of our lives, when we meet God, we meet wrath. And just like Abigail came and she stood in the gap between David and Nabal, Christ comes and he stands in the gap for us and God. God's righteous in this. He's not a sinful aspect of that at all, but we're not. And apart from Christ, we remain in our sins. Apart from Christ, we remain in the wrath of God. But God did something. He sent his son. That's what the Bible tells us. To stand in the gap for us. To stop us from walking into that path of wrath. The most important paragraph in the Bible. I'm going to read it and pray and then we'll be done. 
But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed from being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us, apart from Christ. But we're being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, he's in the gap for us. And we have this opportunity today, if you've not made that decision, to declare Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, to repent of sins, to confess him to be the Lord, to submit yourself to baptism, and begin that chase of holiness that we're all on, then what keeps you from doing that today? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Help us to walk out in the power of all of that. Because it's all found in Christ. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.